0: Welcome to the Aero-Buddhist Tradition podcast series. The following podcast is from a teaching given by Nocturne Rinpoche in San Francisco in 2009 on the subject of relationship as practice. It is based on a book called Entering the Heart of the Sun and Moon, written by Nocturne Rinpoche and his wife, Khantra For more information about the Aero-Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at aerobuddhism.org. If you wish to make a donation to support this podcast project, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help and select Make a Donation. Thank you.
1: So I'm going to talk about emptiness a little now, and after doing that, uh, I'm going to hand over to uh who is going to talk about the four denials the four philosophical extremes, they have various titles, because these are extremely important in terms of not misconstruing what I'm going to say. So emptiness then, I'd like to take it back uh, to, I'd like to take it back to um, Sutrayana which is the path of renunciation. Does everyone know what I mean when I say Sutryana, Valtryana? Uh, would anyone like me to clarify any of that? Are these all terms you know? Yeah. So I don't have to go into what that means. Um, I'll say a little bit about the yanas before I go on. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about the yanas, people often misconceive uh, the yanas uh, to be um, somehow seamless with each other, that they can speak of Buddhism as saying something. I often hear people say, I thought that Buddhism said that this that and the other and I say well yes it does. Sutrayana Buddhism certainly says that but Vajrayana doesn't. And this is largely because people relate with um, religion as truth. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about this is that this is a Judeo-Christian construct and that uh, whether you've been brought up in either of those two religions or not, uh, that idea is is locked within our culture. You know, you don't have to be taught that to have that idea. It's simply in the air. You know, you get it with the gas at the gas station. <laughs> There's no way to avoid thinking that, unless you've questioned it, and there's no particular reason for questioning it. But Buddhism is not a religion of truth. Buddhism is a religion of method. The method may well point you at truth, but it doesn't deal with statements of truth, it deals with statements of method. And so the jhanas are different because the methods are different and to understand why the methods conflict you need to know something about the jhanas and about the basis of the jhanas. So, sutrayana is the uh, vehicle of renunciation. This is the principle, so everything within sutrayana is based on the idea of renunciation. What is being renounced here? What is being renounced is form, addiction to form, which is why all the Practices are vaguely characterized by some form of self-abnegation. I cut out the self, there is no self. There is no me, or everyone's more important than me, or um, whatever. You can see the principle in whatever practice you look at, and it's extremely valuable, because we're all me-oriented and Microsoft know this. I think they're getting rid of it now, but yeah. my computer, you know, mm-hmm. my this, my that, my <laughs> the other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, when I get a new computer, the first thing I do is alter them all, take out the my, so <laughs> my computer just says computer.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know it's my computer, I bought it. it <laughs> <laughs> I don't need the guy to tell me that. <laughs> um, so Sutriyana looks at this self-orientation in terms of what we are doing with it. In terms of how we spend our lives having to prove to ourselves that we are actually here. That we exist. Um, Philosophers also do this. um, Descartes that made this big statement. I'm sure everyone in the room knows it. Mm-hmm. I think, therefore, I am. Uh, is, now, does anyone has anyone never heard that? Isn't that weird? Don't you think that's weird?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, has everyone in this room studied philosophy? So, how come you know this? <laughs> And how come this is such an important thing that everybody knows it? That's very strange. What's even more strange is why is someone asking whether they exist? (laughs) (laughs) I can show anyone in this room that they exist because I've got a Leatherman Wave. You know, it's got a pair of pliers on it, and I can get it on your little toe. I'll show you this. (laughs) (laughs) Someone is obviously feeling pain here, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So why is this question there? I think, therefore, I'm glad I worked that out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, in terms of Buddhism, we would say that we have that question about our existence for a very good reason. We question our existence because we don't in fact exist. If we really did exist we wouldn't question it. This does not mean that we do not exist. (laughs) (laughs) It simply means that we do not exist according to our own definition of what existence is. So if I think I am very important and interesting, therefore I exist. (laughs) If people come along who do not think I'm very important and interesting, then my sense of existence will be threatened. Oh, (laughs) no one's listening to what I'm saying, everyone's ignoring me, you know, who am I? (laughs) Now uh, it's not as um, obvious, it's not as uh, crass as that in terms of our existence. It's far more subtle. In order to exist we have to feel that we are solid, permanent, separate, continuous and defined or continuously redefined. Mm. Now in terms of um, sutrayana what we're doing is asking well what if we let go of that? What if I don't think? What if there is no indicator at all? What is existence without an indicator that existence is occurring? This is the reason for silent sitting, so that one can discover that. What happens when I let go of all indicators, of all reference points? Then we discover that existence continues but it's undefined, or it's continuously redefined. That we're not solid, we're not separate, we're not continuous. We are insubstantial, but this doesn't undermine being. We're discontinuous, but that doesn't mean that we don't continue. It becomes paradoxical at this point. There is a sense of being that exists, but you can't put a label on it. You can't put a name on it because as soon as you do, it becomes a reference point. And as soon as it becomes a reference point, it lets us down because it's impermanent. All reference points are impermanent. So they're both existent and they're non-existent. They operate for a period, but we can't rely on them, which is not a problem. Sutra takes the point of view, however, that because we cannot rely on them, they are not to be relied upon and therefore bad in some way. So we get the idea that any, any concept of self is a problem. You know, the self is a bad, wicked, and naughty thing, and we are to abandon it. Some people use the word ego, I don't really like the word too much used in the Buddhist sense because Freud coined it and it has a perfectly um, functional use in psychology but in terms of Buddhism it becomes problematic because if if you actually had an ego you couldn't lose it. Because in Buddhist terms, this is a verb, not a noun. It's something that happens. You could say egoing, you could maybe say that, but not ego. You can only lose something that is an activity or a habit. Say I pick my nose, which is actually true, but... um, (laughs) uh, Say I wanted to get rid of that habit, which I don't, but... um, (laughs) If I gave up the habit, then where is that nose-picking habit when I no longer pick my nose? Where is it? So it's gone. And it doesn't exist, it's not being put somewhere. It's not like something, I take my shirt off, and then you can see the shirt over there, and I haven't got it on. So when you lose the habit, the habit is gone. So this is really important to understand in terms of what is meant uh, in Sutrayana by selflessness. It does not mean that you don't exist, but that you're not resting on any fixed definition.
0: So, does that mean that basically the self is a behavior? Like mm-hmm. No speaking is a behavior.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's the behavior of referring to yourself for whatever purposes. Anxiety,
1: it's like, not even referring to yourself because you can refer to yourself. Is that you can you can't refer to yourself in the same way all the time? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time, no one's done it. Maybe because I always tell this story, but um, when I'd be talking about some uh, tantric practice, and I say, and then you visualize and someone would be bound to say, well, who's the you that's visualizing? You know, this would be a Sutric type question. And I'd say, well, who's asking the question? Who's who's hearing it? (laughs) You can't get anywhere from there. I'm just describing a practice here. You're going to have to accept that there's a you who's practicing. Mm -hmm. And I I, I, I said at that point, you know, I think I'm going to Give a weekend soon. called come back. Ego, all is forgiven. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, you
1: know, because it's, it's, it's not a question of um, getting rid of it, but allowing it to be what it is which is sometimes there, sometimes not, sometimes defined this way, sometimes defined that way. You know, uh, I mean, who are you? Mother, daughter, friend, enemy, <laughs> colleague, employee, employer, <laughs> are you, one is all these things or can be. There are different friends who look at you in different ways, and have ideas of you. Every friend you have has got a little picture of you in their mind as being whatever, which is you, and also not you. So all these definitions exist unless you want to concretize them in some way, and say, this is the real me. The only real you is the thing that's in flux, or the flux itself. And you can be anything on that continuum of fluxing, (laughs) which is why when friends don't like you, they tell you to flux off.
2: (laughs) 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 <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't. <laughs> sorry. I struggled, I failed. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So this is why emptiness is crucial in Sutra, because we are looking at our habits of identifying ourselves, of self-referencing, of maintaining a self-image. People often think of self-image as something um, that we can be uh, something we can be vain about, but self-image is also poor self-image. It's whatever the image is and it's the maintenance of it, and relating to it as if it were real, as if it were solid, permanent, separate, continuous, and defined. So the initial practice of emptiness concerns with letting go of all that. Letting go of it in terms of we, as we are, and the world we inhabit. We look at the emptiness of that, and from a you know from an academic, scholastic, intellectual point of view in sutra, we can take everything apart and say, you know, where is the r- reality of this place? Where is the reality of this country, this society? This is just a point in history. That's built up and reliant on many ideas that are all moving. So, if you take that point of view, you can see that everything is inherently empty and interdependent. Any questions before we move on?
0: I had a question: Just in terms of uh, Sutriana and its view on. You said that reference points are not reliable and therefore not to be relied upon in the Sutric sutric view, and the ego also, or egoing, would fall into that. Mm -hmm. Is it, within this, within Sutric teachings, within the context of like a Sutric style of teacher, is it encouraged for practitioners in that style or in that way to take the view that like the reference point or the ego is bad or negative or an obstacle Mm -hmm. it is like this is good this is bad, you don't want this so Mm -hmm. it is reinforced with that Mm -hmm. that good-bad Yeah.
1: I think uh, it's important to understand with reference points again uh, it would be better to call it referencing Because the reference points don't actually exist. It's when we. it's, it's our need to convert the phenomena of our experience into reference points. They are not actually reference points, it's what we make of them. Like, you're asking me a question, so that makes me real. So if I do that, I'm converting you, or trying to convert you into a reference point. Of course, you're not a reference point for me. You're just there. You don't prove that I exist, or you don't disprove that I exist. But referentiality is this habit of of scanning the perceptual horizon. And saying, ah, yes, that, 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 and I'm here. That makes me real. But then, of course, that, that, that and the other will change. And then what happens? So I'm always having to (coughs) reestablish reference points around me. So I can say, ah, right, I'm safe now. I've created a new web. The web is uh, I, I, I was watching spiders they're just getting going in Britain now <laughs> well, it, it, well not now but this time every year you get these and they're incredible the, the way they throw those little they create these webs this huge long thing they got this bit here and they're jiggling long often I have to grab a piece of it and, and break it off and take it back so the, the poor old spider doesn't get its whole web ruined by someone walking through it. You um, think it's relying on this really tenuous little thing that's going across a pathway. Mm-hmm. I think, well, why did you do that? That's
2: really <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it must have thought it was all right. It's saying, yeah, I've got this thing worked out now. And a crowd of people walk through it. This whole situation is wrecked, so. Were there any other? Uh, yes.
0: So is it like we have this, <coughs> what you're talking about, building this identity, whatever it is, and so we have a sort of sense of, okay, I'm going to select from reality what confirms
1: mm-hmm. my yeah.
0: building of identity. So I'm evaluating everything. Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this according to like, my mm-hmm. building up? Is that...
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then... The problem is that uh, that might be true, you see. You can get it all worked out, and uh, and it's all working in that moment. Mm -hmm. But then what we do is we imagine it's all going to stay in place, but it doesn't stay in place. Or we don't stay in place. But
0: there's no true anyway, right, it's just experiencing? Mm
1: Okay. So things are continually moving and we try to freeze them. There are all kinds of really peculiar things that people do in terms of reality. I remember Gyalten um, Raposhe and I were in Sikkim once and we'd gone to this place that was where the whole valley was uh, considered to be a therma. And it was uh, a really good thing to do, to go and sit there and just look out into the valley. <coughs> and we were sitting on the side of the road, just looking out into the valley, and a, a, a mini bus pulled up. Really a pristine thing, you know? It's one of these things with a toilet in it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, And a bunch of tourists came out. <coughs> Well, it didn't sound like that, actually. But, <laughs> and click, 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 click. And then they got back into the minibus and drove off. And Gelson I turned to me and he said, didn't they like being here? <laughs> and I said, yeah, sure. I think they like being here well enough. <laughs> I said, well, well why, why did they leave? And he said, well, they've <coughs> taken their pictures. Just say, I was there.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and probably they'll go home, they'll have friends around for dinner, and they'll show the pictures of this place. And, you know, those pictures may be up on the wall for longer than they were in the place, mm-hmm. with them talking all about how they were there. So they're living actually for the moment back after dinner where they're going to show the slides of the place where they were for 30 seconds (laughs) and they'll talk for 10 minutes about it. (laughs) Uh, And this is one of the ways we kind of, you know, you look at what that means for reality. I'm not actually interested in being here, but I'm interested as hell as talking about having been there.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So all this is referencing in different ways, and it's when you get examples of it like that that you start to get the idea that something ridiculous is happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there are all kinds of examples of that, of how things are ridiculous. Fashion is a great indicator of the ridiculousness of, <laughs> of how we see things. You know, there's some item of clothing that I like, and then fashion comes along and tells me, no, you don't like that anymore. You like this, in fact. This is ludicrous now.
2: You
1: know? <laughs> I remember when my brother and I, we used to every once in a while go into town and we used to buy three pairs of Levi's. One that fitted him, one that fitted me, and the biggest pair in the shop. <coughs> and then we'd unpick the biggest pair in the shop and we'd put in these huge sails, you know, to turn them into, you know, and uh, we had 42 inch bottoms on those <laughs> things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we could have had homeless projects going <laughs> <laughs> They were vast, you know. Oh and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I guess now people would think they were ridiculous.
2: Mm.
1: Maybe then they were ridiculous, <laughs> 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 but uh, everyone else thought they was cool as hell. I mean, <laughs> you got Levi's with real Levi insets. And that's, yeah. How cool is that? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I mean, but they are what they are. There's no ridiculous, not ridiculous, that's however you see them. If you like them, you like them. If you don't like them, you don't like them. It doesn't actually mean anything. You know, uh, and there are obvious examples of this kind that are really useful for looking at in terms of what is empty. These expanded, these huge bell-bottom Levi's are neither attractive nor unattractive. They are empty of those ideas. They're just assemblages of fabric. That's that's all they are. But the ideas around them. I often joke about this, uh, especially when anybody refers to my when I'm not wearing uh, ropes. I usually wear a pair of Levi's, and if anybody ever mentions that I wear jeans, I say, I've never worn jeans. And they say, Yes, you do. You're wearing them at the moment. I said, These are not jeans.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: These are Levi Strauss Serge Denim 501 trousers. <laughs> <laughs> Other makes are called jeans. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh,
1: but that probably only makes sense to me. <laughs> um, it has no reality. It, it's empty of that. Just uh, they may as well be that as whatever else one thinks they are. So Sutrayana really you know, goes into this in an intellectual way of looking at the fact that everything is empty of what we project onto it. Mm. There's a lot of uh, talk within Sutrayana of projection of how things are empty of our projections as being likable or unlikable or fashionable or worthy or unworthy. That these are projections upon objects, projections upon people, and that they're empty of these projections. And our sense of self, or, or whatever we are, is empty of reference points We're not bounded by those reference points. And as I said, anyone here could be a father, son, mother, daughter, uncle, aunt, and we are many things to many different people. I mean, uh, back in Wales, I have a son and a daughter, and they regard me as their father. You don't regard me as your father. Well. Maybe if I was Catholic, you know. (laughs) But, However, uh, we are to everyone, whoever we are to those people. But that does not define us. It defines us for a moment. It's not that it doesn't define us, but it's not the whole story about what we are. And we're not bounded by it. And if we rely on it, or if we act as if it had some kind of great solidity, we run into problems. There are a lot of problems that exist between parents and children based on parents insisting that they are parents forever, especially when their children are adults and they continue treating them as if they are their property, which is a very peculiar thing to do. you know, because animals are actually more advanced than that. <laughs> animals are all bringing up their offspring to be adult versions, <coughs> and they're trying to do it really in the quickest possible time. <laughs> <laughs> they are booting them out of the nest. get on, fly, you
2: know. <laughs>
1: I've had it with feeding you, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Human beings don't seem to want to do that. They seem to want to lay claim to their offspring.
2: Uh,
1: and and you see terrible problems when this happens. Talk to you about the uh, the four philosophical extremes.
0: So last night, um, Rinpoche talked a little bit about what what we mean when we think we understand something. People remember this? Understanding. Mm. And normally for us when we say I understand something, remember they said it was it was taxonomy. It's like I know what that is, it's one of these. And I know what this is, it's one of those. And that's When I say I understand something, it's quite often, okay, I've seen this before, so I can relate this with that, so I get it. Rinpoche often says that the, well, I'll put it to you as a question. Um, What do you call it when you think you understand something, but you're wrong? Ignorant? Mm-hmm. A misunderstanding? Misunderstanding. Hmm? misunderstanding? Yeah, that's close. Not understanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's actually um, worse to think you understand something and not understand it than it is not to understand it, if that makes any sense. Because at the point where you think you understand something, then you kind of stop searching into it. You become closed to it. And then it can't, uh, it can't get through you. A uh, very old Buddhist analogy of a, of a student to a cup. And mm-hmm. the cup is empty, the cup is, is dirty, or the cup is upside down. Yeah. The, uh, the person who thinks they understand and they don't, the cup is upside down. Nothing can get into it. So the four philosophical extremes are. I like what you said, Rivichet, about them being the best-kept secret in Buddhism, because uh, <laughs> they're—they're I like them a lot too, and and uh, you don't hear it much. Um, they are ways in which we fail to understand that um, make it very difficult for us to. Uh, progress in our practice and understanding of the teachings. The four philosophical extremes are monism, dualism, nihilism, and eternalism. And they come in two pairs. There's monism and dualism or a pair of opposites. And nihilism and eternalism are a pair. I should say by the way, if you had any questions, just ask. This will be a lot more interesting than if I just sit up here and blather. <laughs>
2: um,
0: so monism is saying it's all one. That's that's monism's little phrase. It's all one. Everything is is the same, everything is connected. Everything is related. And the thing about all of these, all four of these guys, is that they're somewhat true. They're a piece of the, of the puzzle, they're a piece of reality. There's a way in which you can say yes, for instance, in um, sitting practice when we experience um, an absence of thought, which you could say is an experience of emptiness that often comes with the experience that one is not separate from the people and the world around oneself. The problem is that's not the whole story. The problem with all of these. So monism says, ah, it's all one. Dualism says you are, I am, um, an isolated Receiver in a bag of skin in a universe full of dumb things. There is no connection between me and everything else. Uh, it goes sometimes with the notion of a creator God as well, who, who is out there separate from me, created everything and I can never really connect this is dualism. And this is also true, sort of. You know, certainly if I say, um, you and I are one, and you say the heck with that and punch me in the nose, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I would perhaps reconsider that notion, you know. Um. It's like what Ricochet said about, you know, well, I exist. Well, if I, if I put your toe in a pliers, and I, or I don't exist, if I put your toe in a pliers and squeeze hard enough, you might change your mind. <laughs> Something hurts. <laughs> so that's monism and dualism. And nihilism and eternalism are about meaning. Nihilism says everything is meaningless. And, again, could be, you know, one can experience reality that way in a a genuine way. And it can be very liberating, in fact. It's a very free position to be in. I always admired the courage of the existentialists who basically that was their idea, you know, that meaning is only contingent in, in terms of particular situations, and everything is what you make of it. That it's very brave. And frankly, I found it impossible to, to take on as a possibility. But I, okay, you know, there's a sense to which that's true. Anyone who's ever been disappointed in what we expected something to mean has experienced the desire to simply say, well, I'm on my own here. Yes, is that the same as the third terrible oath? There is no purpose? No, (laughs) I mean it it sounds the same, but it's different. Put a bookmark in that. I'll get back to it in a minute, but yeah. Um, We say there is no purpose, but we do it as a defense. The world has hurt me, so I am going to say I am, I am alone. You know, there's no meaning. And again, from the point of view of Buddhism, and from the point of view of, of emptiness, if we separate emptiness and form, which is what we tend to do, you know, everything is empty of meaning. You know, someone can come along and says they're a Buddhist and say, oh well, it's all empty, isn't it? That is, is, falling into the trap of nihilism. And then eternalism is the exact opposite. Everything means something. There's a message in everything that happens to me. If I, if I get cancer, it means this, that, or the other thing about how I live my life. If, if it rains, it means something. If the sun shines, it means something. Everything, everything has a message. And sometimes we do experience things this way. It's, it's something that can really open up our um, availability to what, what's happening and to the world, to, to think that it might have a message for us, or we might see meaning in it. But we don't have to think about this too long to realize that it could also be a mistake. Sometimes things have meaning and sometimes they don't. And to my mind, one of the most horrible things that can be said to someone who's ill is, what did you do to cause this? Mm -hmm. how helpful is that? So each of these four are uh, ways of concretizing a piece of the whole picture. And the whole picture is what Rinpoche has been uh, presenting to us for the last hour and a half or so, you know, of the non-dual state, or the non-dual experience, in which both of these things are true at the same time. If you look at the two, monism, dualism, nihilism, eternalism, non-duality is in the center, where we realize that both of these things are true all four of them are true. You're in the center of this, you know, cross of those four things. That's where the juice is. The minute we say, oh, it's this, I got it now. It's this. We've cut off, or cut cut ourselves off from half of experience. Or three quarters.
1: An interesting thing that um, (coughs) that happened along these lines is, once you understand monism, dualism, nihilism, and eternalism as, uh, uh, as, as philosophical points of view, you can see that a lot of, a lot of the new age is monist, eternalist. Mm-hmm. And you can see this is the way it works. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I was asked to write um, an article for uh, a magazine in Britain called Kindred Spirit, on on the s- subject we're discussing this weekend. I, I wrote the article and it came back and the editor had very kindly um, uh, r- rearranged it for me so that people would find it easier to understand. <laughs> and then Chaudreau, uh had to spend two days <laughs> editing it back again and, s- uh, uh, and explaining why it couldn't be changed in this way. Uh, I, you have made it easier to understand from the point of view of monism and <laughs> eternalism, <laughs> but this is not what was being said, you know. It's hard to understand, because it's hard to understand, <laughs> not because there's an easier way of expressing it. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, I always wish that I would kept what he'd done, mm-hmm. so that I could show people an example of this. Unfortunately, we threw it out, but yeah. it would be a fabulous example of it's easier to understand if you say it like this. Yeah. <laughs> and these were all examples, everyone would say, monism, eternalism. There was never nihilism, though you don't find that in New Age material, (laughs) (laughs) but monism and eternalism are the two that major heavily there.